Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast. And I know it's the holidays in the US, but who doesn't love a little bit of Sasta on the weekend and the holidays? Therefore, we are back for another fantastic episode of the official Sasta podcast with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat, and brought to you by the main man of Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at Jason LK on Twitter, as we're joined by Scott Chisholm, founder and CEO at Classy, the world's leading fundraising platform for non-profit organizations. As a result, they've raised close to $50 million in VC funding from the likes of Salesforce Ventures, our friends at Bullpen Capital, Mithril Capital, and many more great investors. With support and funding like this, since 2011, Classy's helped more than 3,000 non-profits and social enterprises raise hundreds of millions of dollars and be named to the world's most innovative companies in social good and to the 100 brilliant companies by Entrepreneur Magazine. As for Scott, he's also a prolific angel investor, investing out of a fund called Mixture that includes investments in the likes of Change.org, Indonero, Iodine, Case text and more. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to the main man at Sasta, Mr. Jason Lemkin, for the intro to Scott today, without which this episode would not have been possible. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, Joist, the go-to app for contractors. With an average app store rating of over four and a half stars across tens of thousands of reviews, why so much love? Well, the Joist platform is designed for ease of use in a mobile world, enabling contractors to estimate, invoice, collect payments, and manage projects from anywhere. And this is big business. More than 500,000 contractors have used Joyce to manage more than $8.5 billion in invoice work. And you can learn more at Joyce.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Joyce did, visit WePay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got a really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. That really is a must. Get it at WePay.com forward slash Sasta. Who knows? Work with WePay and you could even be featured here in a future profile. Start at WePay.com forward slash Sasta. But enough of my dulcet tone so i'm now thrilled to welcome scott chisholm founder and ceo at classy good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Scott, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today, having heard so many great things from well, from Matt at Salesforce, from Alex at Redpoint, Jason Lemkin. So thank you so much for joining me today, Scott. Thanks for having me. Love those guys. and been following Jason for a very long time. He's been pivotal in helping us grow uh, Classy. Uh, whether he knew that or not, I'm not sure, but uh, he's, been, he's been pivotal. I couldn't agree more. He's a very special man. But I'd love to kick off today with a little about you. And Matt did tell me that the personal story of why you started Classy was was very inspiring. So hit me. Why did you start Classy? And what was the inspiring founding story? Absolutely. Uh, Well, we started Classy actually as a charity pub crawl, believe it or not. And the inspiration for the pub crawl uh, was the fact that my mom had been a uh, two-time breast cancer survivor, battled breast cancer through chemo and radiation treatment twice when I was in high school and in college, and really had a profound effect on myself and my family. And I was living here in San Diego with a group of friends from back east, and we all sort of realized that the the disease that affected us and I in a really deep and meaningful way. Instead of being, you know, sort of 24-year-old degenerates, uh, we decided to actually go out and try to figure out how to do something good and give back. And we went on the ACS, the American Cancer Society's website, and uh, had a kind of a clunky experience. And I love the ACS, but just the, the content and the way that they're reaching out to us just wasn't appealing. And so we decided to, I like to say, we went rogue and we did a pub crawl down Garnett Street here in San Diego and raised $1,000 from 75 people. Um, and I called up the ACS after the pub crawl and hey, I said, hey, you know, we raised this thousand dollars for you and we did this pub crawl and we plastered the town with the acs logo and th- thinking that they would be excited and the woman on the phone actually pushed back and said hey you know you're not supposed to do unsanctioned acs ev- 
events and actually got kind of mad. And so I said, well, do you want the $1,000? And she said, well, of course I want the $1,000, but you have to come to the sanctioned event in two weeks in Point Loma, which ended up being a thousand women really walking around a track for 24 hours. And she also made me bring a money order. So we actually showed up at the event, did a couple laps, handed her the money order and got out of there. But the moral of the story was, you know, what we thought to ourselves at the time is why does giving back have to be so hard? And we went on from that point forward to basically do dozens of different fundraising events throughout San Diego, branching out from the cancer cause and supporting local charities and it had nothing to do with technology at the time. But our events and sort of this groundswell movement of bringing young people into the fold got so big to the point where our events were literally thousands of people. We ended up building the technology, what would become classy for our biggest event. It was a modest Yahoo music concert, actually. And it did something very simple at the time, but it was innovative, was it allowed people to buy a ticket and then create a personal fundraising page and then reach out to their friends and family on the early versions of social media, which was really MySpace and Facebook, and raise money. And the charities that we were supporting that event were the ones who said, hey, what you built here is actually quite amazing. And it sounds super simple at the time, but just because it was a couple clicks to be able to share on social, it was mobile before mobile was sort of a thing, that provided a tremendous amount of value for them. That's really when the, the light bulb moment went on and we quit our jobs and you know the rest is history. The rest is history, but you said about raising money there and we're going to discuss the scaling of three very pivotal elements. And so we're going to start on the funding and raising funding. Uh, you've raised over $50 million for Classy. So I'd love to hear what's been the big learnings in pitching a, a not so sexy business to VCs? Absolutely. Well, the, the biggest thing for our space was that the typical venture capitalists and really investor even just weren't really familiar with the industry, the nonprofit space, and, and in particular, the, some of the pains and the challenges that a person running a nonprofit was facing. Even from day one, there was a really, really steep learning curve on the other side of the table. And it was up to us to educate the person on the market. In the early days, that was really frustrating, actually, because there was often a disconnect and 90% of the meeting would be spent talking about the market, but not just the size of the market and all that, more just the, the basics. Like, you know, what is it like to run a fundraising operation of a nonprofit? What do they do day to day? How, how does this product actually help them? And it was it, it was almost like you had to go kind of a step backwards to, to go forward. And we just weren't proficient at doing that. And we weren't ready to do that in a way that would actually bear fruit. So in the early rounds of funding, we, we received probably a hundred no's. I mean, literally, um, it was like that episode of Silicon Valley, but the one where, you know, everyone says no down, down Sand Hill Road. And that was basically us. Where we found our early success was actually with successful businessmen that were retired that were sort of in their philanthropic phase of life and had either started a foundation or were working really deeply on boards of charities and really understood the pain and from a technology perspective that, th that those folks were facing. And so we raised $5 million all from angel investments because we couldn't raise a single dollar of VC. And it came in the beginning at $10,000 at a time. I mean, literally like tiny slugs. The smallest investor in Classy is actually my now wife, uh, Carrie, which is a funny story for another time. But it went all the way to three uh, lead angels who were very successful businessmen putting in over a million dollars each. And they sort of led the, you know, if you call it seed in series A, it was led by these three really successful social entrepreneurs, if you will. Can I ask, and then, how did you take the nose? It's always a very difficult element of any part of life being rejected. How did you take the rejections? You know, it sucked at first. It was no because they didn't understand the space. And also at the time, the no was tied to the crowdfunding movement in a way because we were grouped into the crowdfunding category like Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe when we knew that we were fundamentally something different. And, you know, I was probably 25, 26 at the time, but really was very inexperienced pitching, whether that's to investors or even from a sales perspective. And I wasn't crystal clear enough about the differentiation between Classy and our approach to the market versus what they were seeing on a day-to-day -day basis. We would often get
get asked, hey, you're the so you're the Kickstarter for charity, right? Aren't there 10 other sites like that? And we'd be like, well, no, 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 no. We'd have to backtrack. And so we weren't in control of the conversation and we weren't putting out that differentiation that made it easier for the person on the other side of the table to understand really what we were doing. So it was a huge lesson, you know, lesson learned for us. And, you know, we're stronger because of it, but, you know, it sucks to get told no. And then you just got to adapt, though. We, one of our core values is adapt and overcome. And we just had to find a different way. We were down here in San Diego. There's probably two VCs down here. And even they said no, by the way. And so we we had to, we, we went to friends that we went, did a super friends and family round. And we just kind of went from there. And each person that invested is, hey, you know, it was almost like referral sales. I was like, hey, do you know someone else who would be interested in this? You know, we're looking for specifically people that have a tie into philanthropy and that can help us strategically. And that started to really work. So it was a totally different approach. But yeah, we turned the no's into into yeses. So you scaled the fundraising there, as you said, almost through referral marketing. So if we apply the scaling then to scaling sales, I'd love to start on the meta perspective of how you've seen the evolution of your sales team to start with. Let's do. Absolutely. So in the first, so we're about six, six years old. In the first two years, we actually didn't have a sales team. And we, we thought that we would magically attract customers through the internet, product would sell itself, it'd be all self-serve, low touch or no touch, and everything would just be you know up and to the right. Turns out that's not the case. Turns out folks that are running organizations, whether they're for-profit or non-profit, like to talk to someone when they buy something of a significant price. But in the first two years, it was really, you know, when we were figuring that out, it was myself and one other person at Classy, and we were basically doing you know what they would call customer development, which isn't really sales, it's more learning. Um, it's more going out there and saying, hey, what, what our, where our product is today, you know, does this price point make sense? Will someone even buy something in a subscription format? So that was that was a critical first two years, but we didn't have a VP of sales and a rep until really the third year. What was so the catalyst? When, well, you know, when, when we started to see a little traction ourselves and being able to sell a price point that made sense economically. So, you know, in the very early days when we started subscription, we were selling at like 49 bucks. And that's that's a tough price point to support you know, the salaries of a sales team. So we knew that we had to figure out a piece of the market where we could sell product at maybe $250 a month and above, but even better would be around $500 to a thousand. And if the market would support that based on the value that we were, we were putting out there. And luckily we were able to prove that. And that gave us the confidence to bring in a head of sales and then two reps. So we went from a VP of sales and two reps to the next year with 10 reps. And then we introduced SDRs and mainly inbound SDRs because we were bringing a bunch of inbound demand. And then the next year it was outbound SDRs. And then all of a sudden we had 50 reps and 30 SDRs in 2016. And then this year we segmented the sales team. In summary, it went basically customer development with just me, then handing sales over to a new leader with a couple reps to start to scale that and get a repeatable process. And then it was introduction of SDRs, so specialization. And then it was really scaling that specialization to a point where we needed to actually segment the team by market so that the approach and the go-to-market was different by customer type. So those are sort of the, the main phases of the growth so far. You mentioned, though, the insane scaling that just in terms of numbers. I mean, my word. But but I'm intrigued. What were the inflection points then in the growth of the sales team? And maybe the, the breaking points as such. Absolutely. Well, I'd say the inflection points were one very specifically outside of adding the first VP of sales, which is which is critical because you hand that off from yourself. But outside of that, I think the addition of the SDRs was really crucial. We had built up a massive amount of content that we were putting forward through our blog, sort of instructional material, lessons learned on fundraising and things like that. It was really doing quite well. But the SDRs were able to be that connection point between the content that we're producing and marketing and our sales team. And that was really pivotal for us. And they would just, they would literally, we would score the leads and they would call them up and sort of bridge the gap between the piece of content they downloaded and, and our product and sort of educate them. So there was this huge sort of softening of the beach that happened when we brought the SDRs in that warmed up the market to who Classy 
was. They were familiar with us because of our content, but they didn't necessarily know that we had a product yet. So that was critical. And then more recently, really the January 2017, we segmented the team by size of organization. So enterprise, mid-market, SMB, and emerging. And, and that was also a critical moment. And that was actually very difficult at first. We almost, again, sort of had to go backwards before we went forward from a systems perspective and personnel and leadership and getting the right people in place. Very, very challenging. But already the wind is starting to you know, get behind us again. And you're seeing sort of the light at the end of the tunnel and why this was important so that each individual segment can have a go-to-market strategy that's specific to the needs and the pains of that customer's subset. Um, and, and I do feel like in 12 months, we'll be looking back. And so that was one of the most important things we did from a scaling perspective ever at Classy. So two questions there. Do you wish you'd done the segmentation earlier? That's a really good question. Probably at least sort of like a midway step uh, into segmentation. The two things that if I look backwards, I would have done differently. Um, one, one is that I would have staggered the sequence of how we rolled out segmentation. And what I mean by that is one of the things that happened when we moved a bunch of reps up market to the mid market and, and a little less so the enterprise team was that we hadn't built the sufficient pipeline to support those reps right out of the gates. And so all of a sudden, those reps are used to getting quite a few inbound passes per month that were in the SMB and the in the emerging segment that would mix in with their out, outbound calling. All of a sudden, they had to do outbound calling 90% of their time. And that's like mentally pretty big shift. Mm-hmm. And it's not that they were resistant to doing any cold calling, but all of a sudden, your job function and the, the time you spend during the day changes, and it's really hard. And mid market and enterprise, we learned, was almost like us entering the SMB space three years ago, where we hadn't really, we had kind of softened the beach. People sort of knew who we were, but it was almost like starting from the beginning. So there was a lot of pushing and a lot of softening the beach again in the upper market. And now the reps are starting to really get momentum. But we didn't anticipate sort of that first three to six months of pushing and, and, and really that uphill climb. So, you know, we could have staggered the demand piece and really built that up better before we moved our reps there. And those were our best reps too. And so I think that, you know, psychologically, we put them in a, in a tough spot and we were able to rebound and really support them through that. But, you know, if I were to do it again, I would have made sure that there was sufficient demand and the pipeline was there before making such a drastic move. I'm, I'm also intrigued with the segmentation. How do you ensure collaboration and connectivity amongst the team when there is almost atomistic segmented units? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with segmentation, a couple things happen. One, you, you add another layer of management. So you have to have a leader, a sales leader over each segment, which for us meant not only our first EVP of sales who came from New Relic, Casey, but also adding additional VPs under him to basically own the go-to-market for each of those segments. And then it trickles through the whole organization, as you're alluding to. So marketing, we now have demand gen leads for each segment. So those folks are basically in charge of the pipeline or the lead flow for that particular segment. They run segment-specific campaigns that are intended to attract that sized organization. And the difference between you know marketing material for an emerging organization with one person on staff and the CEO is the founder is fundamentally different than trying to attract a enterprise organization that is much more ta- technically savvy and mature. So that the content and the messaging and everything from a go-to-market perspective has to get refined. The overarching message is consistent and it's actually really easy to lose track of that, but it's important to keep the overarching message consistent through across all segments. But then you, when you go a little bit deeper, it's very important to refine that messaging based on the pains that that customer segment is feeling. And that needs to connect to marketing and then even into product. And so thinking about your roadmap in terms of these segments is also an important and crucial uh, evolution as you go through it as well. Can I ask, what does the roadmaps look like? I'm completely in the dark here. What do roadmaps look like? How long are they? To what detail are they? How, how do you 
you structure them? That's a really good question. And we've iterated on this, you know, a hundred and a hundred thousand times over the last six <laughs> years. But right now we look basically in phases. So the first phase is sort of the next three months, if you will. The next phase is say six to nine months out. And then the next phase is nine months plus. And each one, as you get longer out, it's a little fuzzier. You don't exactly know what you're going to build, but maybe it's more just like a vision statement or a directional sort of thing, or you're running experiments to try to prove something later on. But in the three months, you, you know, you pretty much know what well, you definitely know what you're building and you might be sort of iterating as you're going through, but it's very clear. And, and the three month roadmap is the one that's completely transparent, at least at Classy, to everyone in the staff. So they know what what's coming. And then we run meetings through the all hands and there's actually product meetings for all stakeholders to see the longer term roadmap as well. And we even go so far to bring our customers into it and show them the three month roadmap and also talk about our vision and whatnot. And these days, especially in the enterprise, we've actually created sort of a track, if you will, for enterprise related features. And they may not be relevant to all customers. And that's a first because the way we made decisions up until this point was, hey, is this feature going to be relevant for every customer and how much value is it going to deliver to the to all customers uh, equally? And that was always the way we made decisions. And now with segmentation and sort of as we start to expand our market presence into the mid-market enterprise, we almost need to make two decisions. One is, is this feature beneficial to all customers? And then two is, is this going to help us move up market? And the second, the answer to the second question, if yes, doesn't always benefit all customers equally. And that's a thing we've had to wrestle with internally and get comfortable with and be able to use that information to help us prioritize what we work on and what we don't. So as a founder moving up market and who has successfully moved up market, talk to me, take me back to the days when you were entering the, the process and really just starting to think about it. What advice would you give to yourself and maybe prospective founders looking to scale up market? Just like when you're building a sales team for the first time, the advice that I think Jason gives, and this is great advice, is you're the first salesperson as the CEO. You go out there and you sell uh, and you learn. And, and usually you don't even call it selling, it's customer development. You're figuring out what the customer is willing to pay for the product you have today and what they would be willing to pay for the product you have tomorrow and how to scale pricing and packaging and just how you go to market. You got to get out there first. So just like in the early days, when you're going up market, I think the mistake that folks make, and we kind of made this mistake, but we, we kind of got a lot of it right and, and some stuff wrong too, was that you have to be, as a CEO, you have to be on the tip of the spear. You have to be out there selling again. Even if you've handed off the sales or to a VP or someone else at that point in time, if you're about to move up market and go into mid-market, especially enterprise, you need to be on the front line. You need to be traveling to those deals and pitching and being in the room and hearing the pushback, being there when you're negotiating price, because then you can help create the strategy. So I would say you're never above getting on the front line or don't ever think you're above getting back on the front line. And when you're moving up market, it's critical actually that you go back into the trenches and just like in the early days and you do customer development before you start building out the sales team. And that's what we did basically throughout end of 15 and and into 2016. We started to get inquiries and demand from larger organizations. And so I would take the lead on those as if I was an SDR, as if I was an AE. Eventually I brought my VP into that and we did it together. And for almost a year, we, we tackled the enterprise, just us. We would basically write down all of our learnings and we would, we won a couple deals. And to the point where our biggest deal was 
seven figures. And our average deal before that was $10,000 a year. So to go from $10,000 a year to over a million dollars a year is a pretty significant jump. And there were definitely a lot of no's and failures and other things before we were able to win that deal. But if myself and our VP hadn't been on the front line, sort of learning as we go and iterating and working together, I'm not sure we ever would have proven that we could do that, which then gave us the confidence to raise a Series C with the thesis that we could move up market into the enterprise. I'm not sure that would have played out the way it did. So again, long story short, get out there, get in the trenches again, pretend it's like the early days. It's like the CEO needs to be out in front and trying to learn as much as they can. Okay, Scott. So get in the trenches. Scott, 60 seconds faster. Four questions, 60 seconds each. Ready to roll? Sure. Challenges as a first-time CEO or entrepreneur? Too many to list. (laughs) Uh, I would say identifying blind spots early enough. And those blind spots get bigger as you scale. So one example would be where to make investments. So when you're growing and, and everything's working, it's easy to point at that and say, let's just scale that. But what are the other things you need to be investing in, in parallel, so that the thing that's actually working doesn't flatline at some point and, and therefore the business flatline. So diversifying your investments. Also, I would say a blind spot around personnel. Just make sure that the people around you are scaling as fast as the business is scaling. And that actually includes yourself. So a lot of self-reflection on that, but also look at your senior leadership team and make sure you're making the right investments there as early as you can and talk to advisors, try to understand what does a C-level X look like at this next level of scale and make sure you've got the right people around you. I absolutely love those two. I'm going to dig into those after the quick fire because there's too much to dig into that. What are the breaking points in scaling SaaS companies? You know, I would say your first sales pod, if you will, or sales team is a breaking point. So I'd say eight reps, one manager, and then that those eight reps and one manager are now under a VP, which is now under a CEO. So you've just added a third level of management and getting that first team where you like the economics that are coming out of that team, that's critical. If you scale too quickly before you've nailed that one team, that's a breaking point in my opinion. I'd also say when you get to 40, 50 reps and you're segmenting, I mentioned this earlier, you add additional VPs under sort of an EVP, if you will, that's also a breaking point. And we've almost fallen in several traps that we just went over through the segmentation piece, but really making sure you stagger the demand and you're able to empower those VPs to run their playbook the way they see fit based on the market segment. Final quick fire, challenges of building a company in San Diego. Funding is number one, although I would, most ironically, it it helped us uh, in a way. But funding, I mean, there's probably one or two VCs here and there's, you know, there's a lot of angel money, um, but it's not always software specific. So finding the funding that is specific to your sector and can help strategically is challenging. Uh, Getting better, but it's challenging. Uh, And executive hiring. So you can absolutely scale a company here. Uh, We're 200 folks now. I would say probably a third of our staff has come from cities around America. They want to be in San Diego. So that part's fantastic. And there's a lot of homegrown talent here too. But when it gets to a certain scale and you're looking for your next C-level X, that's where it gets a little challenging. So being flexible there and starting early on those positions has been critical. Now, I do want to dig into two elements that you said there, especially with regards to the challenges as a first-time CEO or entrepreneur. The first was kind of investment and where to put it. So I'd love to talk about this and just really how you assess in terms of allocation aspects and asset allocation within the company? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, a great example is in uh, marketing. You know, we've done a lot of things right in marketing. We've done some things wrong, but we've built almost like sort of like a HubSpot engine, if you will, from an inbound marketing perspective in our space. And we've quadrupled down on content and and whatnot. And we've, we've just really run that playbook well, and that brings in cheap leads and whatever else. But when you're looking at that growing and scaling, there's other areas of marketing and the go-to-market strategy that perhaps we didn't invest in early enough. One would be a partnership program, for instance, or PR and comms and things
things like that. And so without getting the right folks in those places early, you sort of fall behind. And that's what happened to us. And we're lucky to have been able to catch up. But those were moments in time where you sort of, sort of see things flatline a little bit and you get worried. And it's like, hey, maybe we haven't made the right investments at, at the right moments in time. But I would say the way to navigate that as a CEO, lean on your board, lean on your advisory board. And don't don't assume that you, just because something's working, don't assume that you, you've got it all covered. It's really easy. You know, we were, we were high-fiving for three years at the end of every quarter, you know. And when you're hitting these critical inflection points, you know, 1 million in ARR, 10 million, 20, you need to sort of self-reflect and say, hey, have we made the investments in the right place for the next level of scale? And you should ask some people if they believe that you've done that. And you should lay it out and really be self-critical on that. This may be incredibly horrible as a question to ask. Is there a right time to invest in the future for? Is two years too far? Is six months too short? Are there kind of horizons in mind? No, that's actually a great question. I think there is, for certain things, there is a possibility of investing too early and actually causing internal disruption around focus and, and you know, kind of where your head's at. Partner program is a great one where, you know, in the early days, we had folks that were concentrated on that. We just weren't quite there yet to support it in the way that it needed to be supported. So that what that does is cause frustration for the folks that are working on it. But then all of a sudden, when we sort of deprioritized it, then we were ready and we didn't invest enough in it. So we kind of missed it on both ends, right? So you're absolutely right. You can invest too early. It's never too early to start thinking about it as a CEO and plotting. So I, you know, I do, for instance, on personnel, I do org chart design all the time. No one ever sees it. It doesn't see the light of day, but it's me thinking about the structure of the organization and the S team in the next year, two years. And, and I do that all the time. And I would encourage other CEOs and leaders to do the same thing, not only with your org chart, but other areas of investment. And it only becomes disruptive if you bring in too many people into those decisions too early. So just again, use your advisor and folks that are a little external to try to calibrate when when's the right time. But you know, to answer your question specifically, I'd say I usually look a year out and I want to be making investments now for what I see as important in a year. You also said about scaling people with the company. That was the other element. I'm intrigued. How much do you agree with the commonly uh, held belief of hire fast, fire fast and your process around that and, and kind of the observance of people scaling with the business and how you mm-hmm. communicate that to them almost? So we've definitely, we've had very, very high retention at Classy. We've in a lot of ways treated the staff like family, but there's articles out there where you don't fire family. And as you get bigger, there's this sort of this like yin yang thing with the concept of family and sort of building a championship team. And we've had to sort of grow through that, I think as well. And, you know, we're at a point where we've been at this point for a little while, but where performance really is, is number one. With that comes tough decisions sometimes. And not everyone's the right fit at Classy, but a lot of people are, and maybe they're just not the right fit in that role at that particular time. So the concept I love, I mean, I always think about moving people around. If they're super strong, maybe they've taken some position to a certain scale and just having an honest conversation with them about what their options are versus exiting that person. I think that that's a much better approach because if they had the attitude and the matched ideology, if you will, to be with Classy for that period of time, say two, three years, then they're probably hungry and they they probably want to work on their next best challenge, even if it's not that particular role because they don't have the experience and skill set to take it to the next level. So circling back, I would say I agree in general with, you know, hire fast, fire fast, especially if you you just hire wrong. You don't want that to linger. But for folks that have been there a while and have proven themselves in a role and they're just hitting a ceiling in terms of experience with that particular role, just be open and honest about it and talk to them about what their next challenge or role could be at Classy and they'll they'll get excited and then let them get involved in hiring their boss. We've done that a number of times. We just did that with our new CFO. The gentleman that was in the uh, prior lead role was super excited about going getting out there and hiring someone that he could learn from. So it's all about framing expectations and all about being transparent about what you're trying to do and, and talking about it really early on. Scott, as I said to 
you before the interview. Uh, very, very rarely do I have as many people email me with questions and saying how fantastic a guest is, but I think it was seven people before this interview. It goes to show, but clearly they were right, because I'm so thrilled with the episode, and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. And I want to say again a huge thank you to Scott for all he's done for me in the show and such exciting times ahead for him and for Classy. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow us behind the scenes at Sasta at hstebbings with two Bs on Snapchat. Likewise, you can follow the main man at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. And thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce to you another very cool player in SaaS, Eventzilla, a complete event management platform for classes, conferences, fundraisers, social events, and more. Mostly free, it generates revenue by collecting a fee on ticket sales for paid events, with customers including the likes of TEDx, MGM Resorts, and Honda. And Eventzilla has helped organizers sell more than 5 million tickets, generating more than $100 million in ticket sales. And you can learn more at eventzilla.net. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments like Eventzilla did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. WePay's got a really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Simply head over to wepay.com forward slash Sasta. Who knows, work with WePay and you could even be featured here in a future profile. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.